Toronto episode of the Series B show hosted by Brandon Jones. Nick is the co-founder and president of Plated, a New York City-based company that delivers pre-portioned ingredients and recipes to your door each week. Rumor has it the company is valued at over a half a billion dollars, that's billion with a B, and has over 400 employees. Outside of Plated, Nick is, you may have seen him in you know GQ magazine, um, Forbes 30 under 30, and he really has an incredible background that we discussed today. Um, we also discuss why he chose the entrepreneurial route. We discuss uh, having a Zen mindset and also Harvard Business School as a transformational experience. So this is a really good episode. Hope you enjoy. Very, very excited to welcome a friend of mine from Business School, Mr. Nick Toronto, co-founder uh, and president of Plated. Welcome, Nick. Thanks. Good, good, good to be in our uh, small little <laughs> closet room here. <laughs> He's being humble. He calls it small, but uh, I have to say I'm impressed. Meeting this guy about seven years ago, probably around the first or second week of uh, business school at Harvard. Um, and, you know, we we're just kind of taking classes together. Cool guy. And now I walk into his uh, his office. I mean, I'm looking at 100 plus employees grinding away in front of spreadsheets. Um, he another his co-founder is another friend, Josh Hicks, who is handling the back end. So I haven't seen him here yet today, but. It's really impressive stuff you got going on here. Thank you, me. Thank you. Uh, I, I like the uh, I like the name of the podcast, <laughs> Series B. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, everyone refers to you as, as, as B Jones. Exactly, so exactly. I, I, I love that. That was a little play. I'm, I'm glad yeah. you picked that up. Yeah, I did. <laughs> plated. Explain to the folks that don't know what is Plated, um, what is the mission, the vision of Plated, and, um, and then after that, how did you come up with the concept for Plated? And um, what made you decide that was where you want to dedicate the you know the next decade of your life? Yeah, yeah. So today we deliver everything you need to cook a chef designed meal at home. So you get all the ingredients, recipe cards, delivered to your door. One hundred percent e-commerce. Um, the the insight for for starting the business was you know, twofold. One, we saw that people wanted to cook. And that was, that was a big assumption, hypothesis of ours that a lot of people, even to this day, still don't believe in. We saw cooking as this immutable part of being human. Uh, it's just really, really hard today. You have to know what to do, you have to know where to go. Uh, it's intimidating, it's time consuming, it's expensive, it's wasteful. It's a very inefficient, broken process, right? right? So that was one driver. The second was just looking at the food market more broadly. There really is no market like it. It's uh, in the U.S. alone. It's over a trillion dollars of spend every year. Um, half of that's on dinner. Uh, everybody eats, right? <laughs> and uh, the if you look at electronics or, or beauty, even you know, you're looking at 20, 25, 30 percent plus online adoption. And with food, it, it's somewhere between two and three percent. Right. And um, if you look at more mature economies like. France and Spain, that number is already closer to six, seven, eight percent. Um, so, from a from a macro perspective, we just saw the trend lines and said this is a, a great place to solve a problem for millions of consumers and to take advantage of a of a, of a macro trend using data and technology to, to do it better to build a brand that connects directly with with consumers. Um, 
so that was the in initial impetus. And uh, the, the early days were, were, were duct, duct tape, chopsticks, and band-aids just proving out that there was a there there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, today, the, 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 you know, the mission has expanded as we've validated some of the initial hypotheses. And um, you know, now we're trying to make cooking and eating more personalized, uh, easier, more sustainable for people by building a new perishable supply chain. Mm. Um, so a, a lot of the business model is you know, under the hood, behind the scenes, tech, data, supply chain, ops, logistics. Uh, we own our own fulfillment centers. So we've got almost 500 employees spread across the country that are taking in basil and salmon and and you're servicing 95% of the, uh, the U.S. geographically, correct? Yeah. At this point? Yeah, we ship to all 48 states. There's some pockets here and there that I don't have coverage with. There are probably more cows and squirrels in those pockets than people. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the, the broader idea here, broader vision, is to, to build a, a better way for people to, to cook and eat. That's awesome. So um, let's let's start from the beginning a little bit. Um, just want to get the audience, if they're not familiar with you, and obviously there's some things that they could be familiar with. We have uh, Forbes 30 Under 30 and a number of other uh, awesome achievements. Um, and, and most importantly, this guy's a great family man. Um, met his wife and also his young daughter, and he has another daughter on the way, which is which is incredible. So mm -hmm. uh, a lot of good stuff to, uh, to talk about. But let's start off with... Um, where are you from? Where were you born? Where were you raised? Kind of take us to uh, through your pre-business uh, school experience. Yeah, I uh, had a pretty eclectic background before finding my way to uh, to being an entrepreneur. So I uh, I grew up here in, in New York, uh, just north of the city in the suburbs. Really great, great childhood, fantastic parents, super fortunate and, and blessed to have that. Uh, when I was... So I had three brothers and sisters, biological brothers and sisters. When I was 14, we had good family friends whose parents passed. Mm -hmm. uh, and my folks, you know, some of the, the, the biggest role models in my life, took in these three family friends. So I went from three brothers and sisters to six overnight. Um, so family of seven is oh, kind of a Brady Bunch type. Modern day type Brady deal. Bunch, yeah. yeah. So that, that was a really seminal, um, seminal moment in my life because it, it really taught me that life can be gone in. In, in a literal heartbeat, and uh, if you don't live life to the fullest, you're gonna wake up one one day and say, "What did I do?" Right. Um, so that that was that was that was that was a big point in time for me, about age 14, and then uh, went to Dartmouth College undergrad. Spent a lot of time playing outdoors. Uh, you know, I think Mark Twain said I uh, I needed my schooling to be done so I could get on with my education, <laughs> and uh, in many ways it felt that way to me. So I, I was trying to use the the world as my laboratory, bump up against people and places, and see see how I can make myself in the world. I spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia uh, after the Southeast Asian tsunami. Whereabouts? So I uh, so I flew into Bangkok with with a backpack full of camera gear. At the time, I thought I wanted to be a, uh, a journalist, documentary photographer. So That's I interesting. Took a bunch of gear, flew into Bangkok, um, went on to Burma, uh, Myanmar, uh, which you know, this, is, this is 2005, so this is before everything opened up. Right, right. And um, had, had a pretty wild set of adventures there trying, trying to get out to, to the tsunami zone where the public press was reporting... Uh, five deaths, and then right next door over the border in Thailand, there were 15,000 deaths. Wow. So I, I had this hunch that there was a story to be told there. 
ended up getting in trouble with the military and what was, your, what was your major um, in undergrad? So I, I was a geography major, pretty broad liberal arts focus. Uh, and then I also did this special project where I didn't take any classes my senior year. And that's, I went back to, to the region of Southeast Asia for, for about three months. And I was looking at how um, non-governmental organizations help rebuild society after disasters. Right. So I did that. I was in Thailand, Indonesia, Burma. Fell in love with Indonesia while I was there. Upon a week after getting home back to the U.S., Hurricane Katrina hit. So I then went down to Mississippi and uh, did a comparative study: Burma, Thailand, so you're, you're Indonesia. Like exactly where the Mississippi. action is going now. You're chasing action. Yeah, yeah. I was definitely a bit of an adrenaline junkie when I was younger. Uh, you know, I'm a family man now, so things I've calmed down a bit. But uh, you know, I, I used to. I wouldn't go that far. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. And you're running. You're running a business here as well, which is not the, the most calm, stable. We've we've gotten a lot more stable and calm. Um, you know, four years into it, yeah. uh, the early days were certainly pretty nuts. We'll we'll, we'll get there in a sec. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I ran ultra marathons, did a bunch of ice climbing, tried to become the world's youngest uh, person to ever get to the North Pole unsupported. So all, all kinds of adventures, Dude. mountains mixed in there. And I, and I thought you were interesting based on these. These are new facts that uh, revealed to me. This is, <laughs> this is some pretty exciting stuff. Yes, yeah, so that was all early early 20s. Uh, moved to Indonesia on a government grant. Uh, started a microfinance group there. I uh, lived on a, on a rice paddy with a volcano for a backdrop and worked wow. with, a, with a, a small city in, in East Java, halfway between... Um, Joe Jakarta and Surabaya, if, if, if any listeners are familiar with with, uh, with Java and Indonesia, and um, worked with a team of local guys there to start a microfinance group. Um, we started off as a nonprofit, and uh, I quickly realized that if we wanted to scale and have big impact, we needed to make it profitable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was you know, the idea of profitability and capitalism was completely antithetical to yeah. the guys I was working with. Yeah. So we had a, a parting of ways, but that was a, a good lesson for me. That uh, These are local guys? Local guys. Yeah, they'd been you know, hardcore democracy rights act, uh, activists during the Suharto regime. Um, great group of group of dudes still running the organization now. Got it. Issued something like... What's the name of the org? Called Kompip. K-O-M-P-I-P. Got it. And that stands for uh, a lot of Indonesian words that I'm not even <laughs> going to try to butcher right now. Do you now. speak the language? Sidiki Taja. I assume that means a little bit only, yeah. What about the Asia region specifically attracted you out of everywhere in the world? I always wanted to travel in Southeast Asia originally, and then I fell in love with Indonesia uh, just a fascinating place that I still does not get as much uh, media attention here as it as it deserves. Mm-hmm. Country of almost 300 million people, uh, largest Muslim majority country in the world, uh, fourth largest democracy in the world. Um, so a lot of just really interesting factors Dynamics, at play. Yeah, 17,000 yeah. islands, yeah. 600 languages. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people kind of, I guess, over-index on the Bali piece, mm-hmm. right? So, like, I did Bali as part of my honeymoon. I mean, it was it was probably the mm-hmm. most incredible vacation I've been on. This place got the purest in uh, Ubud. I don't know if you've heard of it, but mm. it was, blew me away. Obviously, you went, uh, you know, below the surface and got the real deal, uh, what's happening on the ground there. 
which is which is pretty cool. So you were primarily attracted just because of the interesting dynamics of, of the region. Yeah, I, I wound up so again Thailand, Burma, Indonesia. I wound up in in North Sumatra and Aceh province. Aceh had been at, at essentially war for thirty years mm -hmm. prior to the tsunami, mm -hmm. uh, and they hadn't had they banned Western journalists and NGOs from coming in. Wow. And some people surmised that there were human rights atrocities going on. The military was involved, eradicating some. But it was, it was some untouched rebels, in a lot of ways. Untouched, from, and it was just this comparing into what was happening. Exactly. So it was this totally wild place to begin with, and then Banda Aceh, which is the capital lost uh, a third of their population in the tsunami. So it went from 600,000 to 400,000. 200,000 okay. people died. So it went from war to like, tragedy yeah. that made uh, introspection a little bit more uh, mm -hmm. uh, immediate. And ultimately brought about peace, which is a great story in the long run. But it was, it was a wild place to, to be for, for a few months during you that transition. At all. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so then you, you established the microfinance organization. Um, you get it up and running. You part ways with the other co-founders. It's still happening. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking now? What are you going up? So I, I saw this schism happening, and I applied to grad schools back in the U.S. I applied to the uh, the Kennedy School at Harvard mm -hmm. um, for a, a master's in public policy, which you which you attained. Yep, yep. So I ended up getting in there, uh, and simultaneously realized that I wanted more business knowledge as well. So I, oh, so you led with Kennedy? Yeah, I Got did. It. I did. Now you have to apply for both degrees simultaneously. But I slipped in under the radar where I was able to get into Kennedy and then apply to... So you Eastern. technically started a year before we did? I did, yeah. Yeah, I started I in 07, uh, right? Yeah. yeah, started in 07, spent the first year at Kennedy, and then got into the business school, spent the entire second year at the business school, and the third year split between the two. Got it. Okay, so you land in the Kennedy school. You realize pretty early on you want to basically supplement that with, with business. Mm -hmm. Did you have a plan in mind at that point? Did you say, hey, I need this education because here's what I want to achieve. I need this piece. Or was it, I know I need to be exposed to this information. Once I get exposed to this information, I'll know, you know, I have a better universe of options to choose from. But I know this is like where I want to go. Mm. Uh, I, I think, in, you know, in retrospect, it's kind of funny because I, I didn't, I never really thought I had a, a tight plan. Yeah. But uh, I was, I was rereading. I've been helping some folks with their HBS applications. And I was rereading my own recently. And I, I said, you know, I want to spend some time in consulting and then maybe, you know, maybe an investment bank. And then I want to head out on my own and start my own thing within five years. Yeah. And, you know, it, with some kind detours along yeah, the way, kind of that happened. kind of happened. But in uh, you know, my first year at Kennedy, I was exposed to these amazing leaders. Uh, a lot of them were mid-career professionals. And, and the ones I was most inspired by were these military guys. Um, so you know, that actually, my, my internship... My, after my first uh, year was at the Marine Corps. So really? I, uh, I went down to officer candidate school, and uh, which is basically boot camp for officers with the Marines. Mm -hmm. And I uh, went through that. I had an offer to commission as an officer. Wait, had you had any military, formal military experience prior to that? No. You can intern and in, in basically join the military? I, 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 you know, there are air quotes going on <laughs> here for, for the audience. It, 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 you know, it was, it's called officer candidate school. It's a 10-week program where they basically put you through the ringer to see if you have what the, it takes, what it takes to so, be an officer. Opt into becoming exactly. an officer. Exactly. Interesting. Okay. So, so 
So I, you know, I get to HBS. I think we were in the same analytics program yeah, at HBS, yeah, right? Yeah, I think so. So I get to HBS with my hair still high and tight, you know, <laughs> coming out of like. So people are like looking at you like, who's this guy? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, coming out of, like POW conditions, <laughs> just like lean and mean and ready to fight some people. And I'm in the classroom That's, at HBS. Wow. So just to, a little bit more context on this, what options are available to and not being a, a Kennedy, not familiar with the Kennedy program, what options are available to, to folks coming out of Kennedy, like? How out of the universe of options did you say this is the one that is most interesting to me? Uh, so I, I, I grew up in New York and I was here for 9-11. So I started thinking about military service when I was something. a senior in high school. You know, kids, imagine. kids at my school lost parents. Kids in my town lost their real. parents. It was real to you. It was real. You yeah. know, I saw the smoke coming. You know, I went, I went down to the water uh, north of the city and I was, you know, saw the smoke coming off the city. And side note. I'm in D.C. I went to Howard undergrad. Mm -hmm. um, we see the Pentagon smoke coming from our window. And at mm -hmm. that point, you probably recognize this as well. The cell phones were jammed because mm -hmm. everyone was trying to make calls. Mm -hmm. And so it was pandemonium. Totally. No messaging. Yeah. And smoke coming from the Pentagon. And people running around with, you know, cr crazy. And it's so, one of those times. Well, yeah. If, if you were, if you lived through that, you will remember, you will remember the day the you died. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly what you're doing. I digress. Back yeah. back to you. So you, you obviously uh, dealt with folks who, who were literally in the, the tragic uh, buildings, right? Mm -hmm. And so that meant something to you. It meant something to me. So I started thinking about military service as a senior in high school. Never, you know, didn't know anyone who'd ever served in the military, never did anything about it. Got to the Kennedy School, saw these leaders who I was incredibly inspired by, and uh, basically looked at it as a now or never proposition. Mm -hmm. I was 25. I can go try this out, and if I if I like it, yep. commit. If not, it was it was a you know, pretty low risk you proposition. Still got business school coming up. Still got business school coming. <laughs> so um, yeah, went 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 to HBS. Um, met my wife my first year there. Yeah, I mean it was it was an amazing t two years. I mean three years with Kennedy, but you know, speaking just to HBS, it's uh, it's, it's an expensive degree for sure. But uh, it's I don't think you could really put a price on it. Yeah, I right. talk I talk to folks that are weighing that you know going and getting a harvard business school mba versus staying in the workforce for for two years and the uh you know the, the present value calculation is, is is pretty black and white if you stay in the workforce and and work these days it's yeah it, you know oftentimes you'll 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 make more money especially if you want to go into technology or entrepreneurship than going and getting the degree but uh, like you said, I met my wife, met my co-founder, met uh, a lot of our initial investors, um, and just gained confidence and, and knowledge that uh, I don't think I, I certainly wouldn't be where I am with, without those two years. So right. it was transformational, and I, I wouldn't wouldn't trade it for for anything. So let's talk about the the internship. This is the first point. You take your first classes. You have one summer left. Mm -hmm. You've already done your uh, your summer at Kennedy School. Went the military route. This one, I assume you're going to like, this is the business yep. internship. How did you evaluate the options available to you at that point? So, you know, again, going back to my, uh, my HBS application, said I want you know, some exposure to either consulting or investment banking. And I, uh, I thought consulting was much more interesting. So I applied to, to the big three, BCG, Bain, McKinsey, um, got a, a, an offer with McKinsey, and I actually went back to, to Indonesia for the summer with, with McKinsey to, to Jakarta, which was a really interesting 12-week uh, project working with a big state-owned state-owned enterprise. Um, 
you know, eye, eye-opening experience for me. Uh, I learned how to tell stories through PowerPoint. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a glamorous way of putting it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, you know, came, came out of that summer and realized that I wanted something more visceral or you know, get my hands a little bit yeah. more dirty. Yeah. So went, 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 went all the way to, to the other end of the spectrum with the Marine Corps path. Got it. So you, you knew after that, that internship, um, it, this was not necessarily what you were you wanted to do or were, were like yeah. happy to do for the coming out of business. Yeah, I, I learned a lot in, in, in that summer, but uh, I, yeah. Uh, both, so I, end, I ultimately ended up spending some time on Wall Street at Goldman Sachs, and both at McKinsey and at Goldman, um, I had this realization where I, I didn't, none of the people who were above me inspired me. Right, right. So I looked at what, you know, quote-unquote success looked right. like. Like, I don't want that to be me five right. or ten years right. from now. Right. Um, and, you know, that that whole process led me to think, well, what what... Where do I want to go to find people that inspire me? Who who do I want to be? And I, I've I've you know, actually throughout my life rarely found mentors. I've actually never found a singular mentor who is everything in one package, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the the mentors and, and people that I find to be inspiring I have very different backgrounds. I've, I've pieced people together to form this amalgamation of you know what who who and what I'd want to be. 5, 10, 15 years down the road. Got it. So let's talk about that. Who, who would you consider as you piece together folks who inspire you? I'm not going to say mentor specifically, but even people you don't know mm. that you look at as someone that you like to model yourself up after in some kind of way. Who, who are folks that come to mind for you? Um, uh, my dad and mom, you know, like I mentioned, they're, they're, they're incredible role models for me. Took 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 folks in. Yeah, needed them. Yeah, you can't make a bigger sacrifice. Yeah, and just just really good, quality, solid people that that have been successful in their own careers and uh, but always put family first. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I've been reading. I I've been reading a combination of. I actually listen to a lot of audiobooks and podcasts. So I've been listening to a combination of podcasts and I attend towards we were talking about Tim Ferriss mm-hmm. earlier Mark mm-hmm. Marin mm-hmm. Um, um, Joe Rogan hopefully series B one of these days yeah we'll series see. B once we'll, we we'll see once we launch maybe <laughs> um, combination of podcast sci-fi and then these you know like tycoonographies right. biographies of these business tycoons. That's, that's the obligatory kind of HBS you, no matter what you're doing you have to read every now and again the tycoon that's right that's right story. so you know I, I you know, back to like putting together this, uh, this amalgamation this picture of different inspiring people I listened to Ted Turner autobiography and he's just a nut he is total nut but great he story he, yeah <laughs> he does he gets things done he does um, I think that's a big part of it right it's like can do you get shit done, right? Like, can can you be a visionary and you know, put a, put a strategy and paint a picture of what the future looks like? But a lot of people can do that, yeah, right. But then actually, like executing. You you mentioned podcasts. What are you reading? Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about that. So I'm actually on on my bedside table right now. Um, I'm reading this book that's called Autobiography of a Yogi. So it's uh it's the book that Steve Jobs handed out to everyone who attended his funeral. Okay. Um, Wait. And, so he pre. Well, he knew he was gonna die. He pre said, "Hey, everyone, this is my first time hearing this." Yeah. He said, "Everyone who's coming to my funeral Get, gets a copy book. of this book." Got yeah. It. Okay. Um, it was written in 1946, 
and it's by the, the first um, uh, Indian spiritual guru who came to the U.S. and exposed modern day like the culture to, 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 to yoga, you know, hatha yoga, the physical yoga being only one of multiple parts of what yoga is. Interesting. And it's a, it's a really compelling read. I mean, it just gets you this exposure to, I, I've never thought through, through right. any of these lenses before. So when you're reading this book, are mm-hmm. you then looking back at Steve Jobs' image? Obviously, what he accomplished, unquestionable. But mm-hmm. then folks will say, oh, working with Steve Jobs wasn't the easiest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the book that he kind of suggests to other folks. Mm-hmm. Do you feel in reading this book that this is consistent with the image that you had of Steve Jobs? Well, so I also, um, I also read Becoming Steve Jobs, which is which is not the uh, Walter Isaacson version, but uh, I forget the, the, the author's name. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a much different perspective on who Steve Jobs was. Right. Right? So I think you know, universally in the 1970s when Steve Jobs was 23, barefoot, long-haired, right, right. Um, he was a pretty tough person right. to be around, right. you know, pretty much an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but after he got kicked out of Apple... And spent that time in the wilderness. The story that becoming Steve Jobs tells us he came back a much more humble person, and that's when he was most successful and able to execute and get people to really follow him. Interesting. And uh, you know, part of reading this autobiography of a yogi, you know, you think of a of a of a sadhu or a, a saint or a, a guru, and you know, long hair sitting there just in, in bliss with with right. the universe. And right. yes, there's there's a part of that, but um, you know, similar to a, to a Zen mindset, you've got these guys that are very in, the, in this book, it's all guys uh, who are who are pretty much hard asses. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. con- convincing you know, help along your path to to understanding a, a deeper sense of how you right. interact with the universe. Interesting. So I think, like, to your to your point around the, the objective, set an objective, and then the the means to get there changes for based on who you are and, and how how you figured out how to work with the world. Right. Um, right. But definitely, I, I, I've I've fervently believe that having some spiritual component to how you live your life. Okay, so you've taken from that, and um, even going back a little bit, at some point you decided what you want to do with your life, right? You decided, I don't want to do Wall Street, I don't want to do Big Three Consulting, yep. these are the paths that are actually most popular for mm-hmm. graduates of the school that I yeah, attend. And, and you can speak to that too, right? I can speak and to that too. You, I, 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 I think the, the one downside to HPS is you get funneled into yeah. these these paths the uh, herd mentality mm-hmm. as they call it mm-hmm. um, how did you break free of that first question second question deciding to break free is different from actually coming up with a plan and implementing that plan right so mm-hmm. in the space of opportunity let's say someone says I want to be an entrepreneur I mean you could do anything from you know construction to <laughs> you, you, you're choosing food mm-hmm. how did you sculpt and mold okay I made this decision to like here's the opportunity that I'm really going to dedicate the next at least eight to ten years of my life uh, mm. to build. So, also let's let's hit a couple of the chapters in between real quick. So, got out of HBS, commissioned active duty into the Marine Corps, uh, got off active duty as an infantry officer, went to Goldman, was working private wealth sales there, and uh, I was there about seven months. Yeah, that's just just that's a, yeah yeah. It's, it, 
That's a tough world. It is. The it's a tough world, world tough. and the, 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 there was. You know, I've always been driven by big challenges and big missions, and uh, I didn't find it challenging, and I wasn't compelled. There, there was really a lack of mission. Right. Um, right. But my job there was meeting with successful entrepreneurs and wooing them to give their their, their money to me to manage. And that's when the bulb started. Going yeah, on you know, I just started talking to these folks and realizing I want to be in your chair. I don't want to be in my chair. Right. Um, and again, you know, I saw the folks that were most quote unquote successful at, on my desk. And I said, I don't want to, I don't want to be you 10, 15, 20 years from now. I want to be these guys that I'm supposed to be courting for their, for their hard earned dollars. Um, and that's when I really realized I, I, I wanted to be an, an entrepreneur. Uh, and you know, talk, start having you know, coffee with as many people as, as, as I could, uh, just trying to understand what that meant. And, uh, realized that I wanted to take advantage of data technology and apply that to a, to a space where it really hadn't been applied historically. Um, and uh, you know, one of these coffee chats was with Josh Hicks, who is, uh, is uh, a co-founder here, here at Plated. Uh, he had been an entrepreneur before uh, business school, Georgia Tech engineer. So I was the sales guy. He was the engineer, very complimentary. We had, you know, Done volunteer work together, served abroad in in, in Haiti after the uh, after the earthquake. So you guys there. were close in business school. Yeah, I mean we never worked on serious work together, right? But, but yeah. you knew you were compatible mm-hmm. um, personality wise. Yeah, which I think is a, is a huge takeaway for anyone trying to go down this road of starting their own business. One, I'd highly recommend finding a co-founder. Uh, it's it's incredibly hard to start something from scratch and turn it into reality. Uh, doing it on your own, I, I have just huge amounts of respect for anyone who's able to do that. Right. Um, but finding the right co-founder is the is the biggest thing you will do to enable your success and, and scale yourself to be able to even digest mm-hmm. everything coming your way. Yeah, totally. Um, okay, so incredible idea. Um, there's a tension between high quality ingredients, sustainably sourced, all these elements of of kind of the things that happen behind the scenes, and then there also has to be a price that's palatable to the, to the consumer. Have you positioned yourself in the market to be the premium uh, provider where folks who are interested in getting sustainably sourced, organic, those things, and they'll pay for it? Or are you looking to basically push these high-end kind of quality, best ingredients to a price point of folks that, that can, you know, how are you approaching like this conflict of price versus quality? Yeah, so you'll you'll remember from our MBA 101 days that uh, you want to avoid a price war at all costs, mm-hmm. and it's also easier to uh, start high and go low versus the other way around. There are okay. plenty of examples of premium brands that have you know, built out a, a more mass product over time. There are very few examples of businesses that have gone the other way around. Right. So we we followed the same playbook, decided to start at the top of the pyramid. Um, you know, we could, we could probably spend a whole podcast talking about pricing strategies. Um, but we've, we've had the same pricing model in place for almost two years now, uh, and have validated that there's a, a, a very large market that's willing to, 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 to pay for high quality food delivered conveniently. Much like a Starbucks, if you will, where Starbucks did not enter the market as the, the, uh, even consistent with pricing for coffee, it was the high end high quality experience that you were getting yes. at Starbucks. Yeah, exactly. So so for us it really is about providing that experience for customers. That's what that's what people are paying for right. is that experience in, in the kitchen and you know, 
having us enable that for them. Awesome. So we can, I know we're running short on time. Oh. This, is, this man is a CEO, or excuse me, a president running a, a large <laughs> organization. Um, and so I, I want to be respectful of his time, but I, I do want to do a few quick get to know Nick. Uh oh, this sounds dangerous. No, nothing, nothing dangerous. Guilty pleasure. What's your guilty pleasure? Um, swimming and whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> kind of opposite ends of the spectrum, but yeah. Swimming and whiskey. What's your favorite whiskey? Uh, gotta be Lagavulin, the Lagavulin 16 from Isla in Scotland. Nice. Smoky, delicious, caramelly <laughs> goodness. Um, where in the world have you not traveled yet that you'd like to go? Uh, uh, after watching Narcos on Netflix, <laughs> I gotta get to Colombia next. So Colombia. What's funny is my, my bachelor party was in Medellin. No, Medellin. no. Yes. It was even funnier. <laughs> that sounds really dangerous, man. <laughs> and a lot of it is still Escobar world. Uh -huh. um, but within that same year, another one of my friends had his bachelor party in Medellin. So I actually went to Medellin twice wow. in like nine months. Is that a bachelor party destination these days? It wasn't. I guess it is now. I mean, guys nowadays... Be uncharted territory, <laughs> man. Well, guys nowadays have a little bit of money to spend and mm -hmm. their time is more important than, than the money, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a, a really expensive place, mm -hmm. but people are generally well-traveled, you know, nowadays uh, in our circles and they want to go somewhere they haven't been before. Mm -hmm. So the excitement of tackling a new place that mm -hmm. is like... Mm. A little dangerous, mm -hmm. you know. Got people really excited. Yeah, so it, was, it was a fully attended bachelor That's party. That's cool. I, I got to float that. Both my brothers are getting married this year, so I got to got to float that oh, as wow. a destination. Yeah. Wow. They might not be as adventurous as you, though, man. So you're the first to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting, and, and you're doing well. Um, two other questions I have for you: If you had to look back and say there was one characteristic that you felt as an entrepreneur, being a successful entrepreneur, is most important now. What would you say that is, based on your experience? I'd say it's it's grit, grit and resilience. Um, you know, no matter what you start, it's going to be hard. Um, so just being prepared for a lot of rejection and a roller coaster ride of of emotions. Uh, you know, this is definitely not for everyone. It really is not. Uh, I think I, my my temperament is is particularly well suited for entrepreneurship um, but it is definitely not for everyone it, it, uh, it, you know, if, if you are if you are normally lower on the risk curve in terms of how you live your life um, this very well might drive you insane right and then other pieces as well like the co-founder your wife has to be supportive oh all yeah these other things that yeah are in your control but after that decision is made kind of out of your control yeah. type, type things? A lot of it really comes down to, to self-management and just being able to, to, to check your own psychology. When you have a, a co-founder, supportive co-founder, supportive family behind you, it makes things much easier. Right. But the self-leadership and self-management and just the, the resilience required to, to weather the early days is, is pretty tremendous. And the last question for you before we break out, um, You've been through a hell of a journey already. Hmm. Um, I remember we talked, I think this is maybe a couple years ago, I, I happened to be in town. We were at some some uh, kind of house party situation. You were, I think I was talking to Josh, he was telling me these stories about you guys were gritty, mm -hmm. very gritty at the early stage, mm -hmm. packing things, getting <laughs> it done. Some story about air conditioning. Yeah. It was a crazy story. Um, <laughs> based on your experience, what do you feel is the one lever that you feel does not get as much um, uh, you know, touting as it probably should have based based on your. It's, it's not a sexy answer, uh, mm -hmm. but it's you know, building the right dashboard 
for your business, mm. right? So uh, a lot, I don't think you'd be starting your own business if you wanted to do things exactly the way everyone else does them, but understanding what metrics matter most to your business as early as possible and then delivering on those, um, it, that's what it's all about. Uh, it took us. It took us a long time to figure that out. We were measuring the r the wrong things and measuring the wrong things the wrong way. Interesting. But the the, er the the earlier you can dial in what matters most and figure out how to how to dashboardize your business, right. that'll that'll dramatically increase probability of of making it through. Got it. Well, Nick, it's it's been a pleasure. It's been Hopefully good. We'll be able to get you in a part two and, and double click on some of these early series stories. B part two, series B part series two, series B two, series C. <laughs> but thank you for uh, for your time and for sharing a little bit of your story. And uh, best of luck. Maybe we'll talk a little bit offline about um, a discount code for folks in the audience who may not have used Plated yet. Yeah, for sure. Involved. Um, but other, in other words, uh, this is the platform that everyone should at least try once, just because. Not only is this guy a great guy in general, but because they're bringing high quality uh, food to you. And so um, thank you again, Nick. Um, Thanks, B. This is, this is fun, man. And we'll see you again soon. Cool. Take care. And that concludes the Nick Toronto episode of the Series B Show, hosted by Brandon Jones. Hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. Uh, Nick is offering a special discount for the Series B Show listeners, you guys, to check out Plate It. You can get the discount code by going to seriesb.co um, and clicking on the Nick Toronto episode for that special discount. So I hope you enjoyed and I uh, look forward to you tuning in to the next episode of the Series B Show.